Hello, and welcome to the Jubilee Church Podcast. Jubilee Church exists to help all people know God, find family, discover purpose, and make a difference. If you would like to learn more or connect with us, please visit our website at jubileestl.org. My, my, one of the most favorite things uh, my family and I do a lot, we, we camp. We've done that for 10 years or so, ever since our kids were little. In fact, uh, I guess it was like two years ago, we bought an old camper, kind of fixed it up. And so we're into it. Like we love to camp. And, and when we go camping, like one of the first things that we do, and it's really one of our the favorite thing that we do is we, we, we make a fire. Like, you know, I love the fire. You know, it's warm. It's beautiful. You know, we cook our food on it a lot of times and roast marshmallows. Love, love, love the fire. And so, I, you know, I have the matches. Kids go get, you know, kindling and, and we throw some logs on there. And sometimes, especially when the, the kids are younger, they would take a branch that was in the fire and they just start like running around in it, like in the woods. In the, in the like, and we're just like, no, 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 the fire, the fire needs to stay like right here in the fire pit. You see, they've, they've designed it right here to stay in this fire pit. And in fact, you'd see signs everywhere. I mean, don't you see the signs, kids? Don't you read signs? They say, do not put fire anywhere except right here. And in some places, they'll even have like this big bear, like it points at you and says, only you can prevent a forest fire. It's just like, come on, we're in Missouri. There's no forest. It's just woods. Okay, anyway, but we, and um, it, it's, it's possible, it's possible to take a wonderful thing, a necessary thing, a beautiful thing, and make it extraordinarily destructive. Like, man, that fire just like makes our food. It's beautiful. It's like our favorite thing to do. We do it all the time but it's possible for it to be a destructive. The fire is actually really good. The fire is awesome. There's nothing wrong with the fire, um, but the location of the fire is really, really important. You know, you don't want it just kind of raging through the forest. You want it, you need it in that, in that, in that fire pit. I'm bringing this up because I want to have the sex talk. And I don't mean like the 15 minute awkward one that your parents told you like three years too late. Like, that's not the one. It's like, come on, dad, I think I have a few things to tell you. Um, but sex can either work powerfully for you or it can work powerfully against you. Most of what I want to say, I, my heart is to, to talk to those of us who are single, but it, it's, it's not just that. And my hope is to bring some a clarity around this, this subject of sex that, that I think is intuitive and in some ways I'd say is really, really obvious. It just doesn't get treated as obvious and no one really talks about it because it's not marketable. You can't make any money on this message. Nobody is going to make a movie about this message. It's not interesting at all, uh, but it is true. And I want to help as, as many people as, as possible. And that, on the get-go, on the front end, I just want, I, can, I want you to do me a favor. I want you to be aware of your filters. You're going to hear this message through some filters. You're going to hear this message through the filter of maybe how the Bible was taught growing up or some other place. You're going to hear this filter through your past experience. You're going to hear this filter through a friend that you love and you're trying to match this up. There's all kinds of questions that are going to come up in your head. 
Um, back last couple of weeks, you know, we, we talked about how like, you know, some of us can, can trend toward a licentious gospel. Some of us can trend toward a, a legalistic gospel. And, and this series is going to mess uh, with both of those things. And if they're tied to you, it's going to mess with you. And I would love for you to be patient and listening to this and, and really press in and, and at least, you know, give me till next week because I won't get a chance to answer all. I won't get, get to everything. And in fact, it's going to bleed into other conversations about what about singleness and divorce and all kinds of other, you know, fun stuff. And so we, uh, so I want to ask you for, um, for you to be aware of your filters. And, and actually, that's, a good, that's good advice anytime you approach the scripture, because all of us have them, and we, and we end up seeing the Bible through a dimly, through like an old, cracked, dirty glass, and we don't always see it if we're honest. So if we can, we can do that specifically for this one. And uh, this is not an appeal, let me just say this, this is not an appeal to religion, but, uh, but a designer. Um, I have a cousin, I just found this out a few years ago. He actually makes quite a bit of money. And, and I was like, why didn't I know this sooner? And so we would have hung out. And um, <laughs> it's vacation together, you know. Um, I, I found it, in, and I was like, I thought he sold concrete or made concrete or something with concrete. But actually, he doesn't do that at all. All he does is he has a website. And, and what he does is if, if, if you want a, like a concrete patio or concrete anything, he will connect you with contractors in your area that do what you want. And, and I said, how in the world does this work? He said, well, this is a few years ago. He says, well, I just, he goes anywhere, any city in America, if you Google concrete patio, my website will come up first. And he's from California and and we're here in a coffee shop in St. Louis. I said, like, well, prove it. And so he did, and he was right. I'm like, how in the world did you do that? He's like, this is what I do. I, he says, I go to Google twice a year. I spend $500,000 on ads. And they, I have the people at Google tell me how to do this. In other words, he has the designers of Google tell him how to use Google. And he's very successful. I want you to be very successful in this area. And this is an appeal to your designer and not a religion. There, there's, there's a way he designed this thing to work that's so important. And so we're looking at, the, at Corinth. Corinth um, church was very active sexually, but they were also very confused sexually. No one really seemed to understand what it was or its original purpose. In fact, that's why Paul says three times, I don't know if you notice this, did you not know? Do you not know? I mean, certainly someone should have told you this by now. And so he wants them to know, and I want you to know. And, and, and really, today's message is really about tackling this myth about sex. And that's this, that sex is just physical. That sex is just physical. In our culture, sex is treated as a mere physical act. In other words, if no one gets hurt, if it's consensual, there's no disease transmitted, there's no unwanted pregnancy, then what's the problem? It's just physical. You know, it's like ping pong or, or tackle football or, or something like, you know, whatever. It's, it's just a physical thing. 
there's no more to it. It's just, you know, it happens, and once it's over, it's over. If no one gets hurt, then what's the problem? And this was the view of the Corinthian church. And so Paul, in verse 13, he, he communicates a motto that was popular in Corinth because they viewed sex as just a physical activity. And so he says that this is a quote from the culture. It, says, it went like this. Food is meant for the stomach and stomach for the food. It's an appetite. Sex is an appetite. It's, it's a desire. And it's, it's, we just, if we have it, we need to fulfill it. You know, if you're hungry, you eat food. If you're feeling an urge, you have sex, you watch sex. Sex is just a physical desire like anything else. And in this culture, they, they, they had this temple. They literally worshiped sex. They had a temple and, and there was prostitutes there. And so you would get off work and, you know, you, before you took the, you know, picked the kids up from soccer practice, you went and, and, and you had sex. It's just a physical thing. It's just a physical thing. And, uh, but if you treat it as only physical, because it's not just a physical thing, and it's Paul's point, you will hurt yourself, you will hurt your partner, and eventually, like a fire through the woods, you'll cause damage to everyone around you. And single people, you're maybe sitting next to a married person who's caused damage in their life around this area. And they may or may not even know it. Now, I want to say, I want to ask some questions because I want us to get on the same page. And I don't have an agenda in asking these questions. They're rhetorical questions. You don't need to answer them. But I want you to think about them. And and I'm previewing it this way because they are difficult questions. They may bring up painful things. But I want to make sure, I don't want to take for granted that we we all agree that, 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 that sex is not just... Physical. If sex is physical, why is it that your deepest regrets are sexual? When someone says to you, hey, you know what? I want to tell you something I've never told before. They don't go like, I was at the mall. I hit a card. I didn't even know. They're like, well, I was 18. I, you know, I was on spring break. I thought they were the one. I didn't think it would come to this. If sex is just physical, why is it that our deepest regrets are sexual? Why is it that... Rape is a different category than assault if it's just physical. I mean, why is it not like just getting beat up? Why is it that a woman will, or a man will report being mugged or stolen from pretty frequently, but has a difficult time talking about their rape story or their abuse story? Why is it when kids who are abused when they're younger and they're adult and they figure out what happened to them. Why is it hard for them to shake that off? Why is it that men who have the deepest sexual issues and addictions, why is it that almost always they have missing or uninvolved fathers? The smart people will tell you it's a predictable pattern, that sex is not just physical, and it touches you at the deepest level, and it was meant to. And if you treat it right, it can be powerful and good. And if you treat it wrong, it can hurt you at the deepest possible level, especially 
yourself. Proverbs 22 says, the prudent sees danger and hides himself, but the simple go on and suffer for it. And I don't want you to suffer. Paul doesn't want this church to suffer. And your God and your Father in heaven certainly doesn't want you to suffer. So Paul told the Corinthian church 2,000 years ago in uh, chapter 6, verse 15, he said, do you not know? Because some of you are living as though you don't know that your bodies are members of Christ. In other words, like we're all a part of the body of Christ. We're the hands and feet of Jesus and we're all the part of the body of Christ. Shall then I take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Or do you not know, verse 16, that he who joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? Now, how did the Corinthian church uh, receive this? Well, they probably received it like you and I might, where they're like, look, you know, nobody's, you know, no one's uniting anything. Paul, you're using this word that's like intertwined, glued together, uh, scrambled eggs, can't be sorted out, permanent. Like you're, you're using all of this language and, you know, we're not joining, we're not doing that. We're just, we're just having sex. Because they, when they thought, you know, when you have sex with someone, it's just physical. They didn't know that they didn't know what happens emotionally and spiritually when you have sex. No, has no one told you this? Has no one told you that this is more than physical? Then he adds, for it is written, the two shall become one flesh. The two shall become one, a one that can't be unone. In fact, the, the Hebrew word for uh, sexual love is the word dode, which means the mingling of souls. This, this idea that, that souls are coming together. It's not just bodies coming together, it's souls coming together. It touches you at the deepest possible level. And there's a very real sense that, that when you have sex with someone, you come together and then you go your separate ways. There's a very real sense to where there's always a part of them that stays with you. And there's always a part of you that, that stays with them. And it, it affects your ability. It affects your intimacy factor. And here lies the mystery of sex and why it's so important that it stays within the boundaries of, of, a, of a biblical marriage, not to stifle sexual enjoyment, but to cre increase it and to keep it from damaging you at the deepest possible level of the Bible's for that. I mean, if we had time, which we don't, and I mean, I could take you to places in the Bible that would, would make you blush, um, that... There are certain parts of the Bible that Hebrew boys could not read until they're 13. Uh, they'd often sneak into the temple to go see what was going on, but they weren't allowed to. Genesis 2 starts off with a, a, a naked man serenading a naked woman. And that's just the beginning. I mean, so the Bible's not against at all. But it, God's design for it was to create intimacy. He had something bigger in mind. We're going to talk about this next week, the, the closeness. He's like, I want to image something. I want to image something about my relationship with you, the closeness and the oneness, and it's going to be portrayed in marriage. And, and it's not the only way that, that there's, it's not the only way that this relationship is put on display, but it's one of the ways. So God had something way bigger than mine than just 
our joy and fulfillment and kids and all that kind of stuff. I mean, he kind of put it all together in one factor and he made it enjoyable so that it would, it would happen a lot. So there would be a connection. So the Bible's not wanting to put a limit on our enjoyment or our fun, but he's putting a restriction. And, and to, to understand why this is important, there's a lot of reasons why. Uh, there's a lot of things that we need to understand to understand why this is important. Like I said, we won't get them all this week. We'll get into some next week as well. Um, but one of them is to understand what a covenant relationship is. So a marriage is a covenant relationship. A covenant relationship is an agreement between two people to love each other regardless of circumstances or even the performance of the other person in the covenant. It's, it's a vow. It's a, it's a promise. It's what that means. A covenant, so that's what that covenant is. That is not the kind of romantic relationships most people enter into today. So most people, when they think about this issue, they think about, they think about a consumer relationship. They may not use that language, but that's what they mean when they talk about the romantic relationship. In a consumer relationship, in the traditional sense of the word, you relate to a vendor. And you have a relationship with the vendor as long as they are giving you a quality product at a good price. And there's no question that you have a relationship with this vendor, but you're always looking for an upgrade. And so you say to your vendor, we have a relationship, but you better keep adjusting to me in my needs or I'm gonna go somewhere else because my needs in this relationship and a consumer relationship are more important than the relationship. So if I can get my needs met better somewhere else or at a cheaper price, that's where I'm going. A covenant relationship is exactly the opposite. In a consumer relationship, you adjust to me. In a covenant relationship, I adjust to you. Whether you are sick or poor, whether you're confined to a wheelchair or not, whether you can keep a job or not, our relationship is, is about a covenant. A consumer In a consumer relationship, my needs are greater than the relationship. In a covenant relationship, the relationship is greater than my needs. And it's in and only in a covenant relationship that our heart finally gets what it's looking for. It finally gets that zone of safety we all need. In a consumer relationship, you're always marketing, you're selling yourself, you have to perform, you have to keep meeting the other people's needs and it's exhausting. But in a covenant relationship, you can finally be yourself. And a consumer relationship is, is fueled by performance regardless of the promise. In a covenantal relationship, is fueled by a promise regardless of performance. Let me just hit time out here for a second. I've got amazing news, my brothers and sisters, is that the relationship that we have with Jesus is a covenantal relationship, which means that the basis that the, for the relationship that we have with God has nothing to do, is not fueled by our performance. It's fueled by his promise. So it doesn't matter what you did last week or last night. His, his acceptance of you, his love for you, the, the strength of that relationship is not dependent upon your performance. It's dependent upon his promise. This life that we live is built upon his, his good deeds, his life. It's not built upon our life. We are meant to have, God has created for us because you are designed for this. You are designed to be in a relationship. You are designed to be in covenantal relationships, mainly with him, but I'll, I'll take that a step further. What we're trying to do here at Jubilee Church is we're trying to build uh, covenantal relationships with each other. 
So we, we call membership covenant membership, which means that my relationship with you, my, my love for you, my, my passion for you is not fueled by your performance. It's fueled by a promise that God has made to me. And because he's made it to me and it's real to me, I want to treat you that way. So how we live out this covenant isn't like when someone offends us or irritates us. It's not like, well, I have to go somewhere else. That, that's treating the relationship that you have with your brothers and sisters and actually it eventually with God as, as a basis of a consumer relationship. That the, that the way that you and I hang out is because you do what I want you to do. And you say what I want you to say. And you act the way I want you to act. A covenantal relationship is based upon a promise. It's fueled by a promise. And we're meant to have that with each other. So we bear with each other. We forgive each other. We love each other. Because that is how our relationship works. And so when you begin to treat your brothers and sisters based upon a consumer agreement versus a covenantal agreement, it affects how you view God. It's a really big deal. What does this have to do with sex? Everything. Here's why. Because sex is a covenantal good, not a consumer good. Sex is like a sacrament. It's an external symbol of an invisible reality that two are now becoming one. What makes you married is the vow that you make. It's the promise that you make. And the ring is the one-time symbol of that promise. Sex is the ongoing renewal of that covenant that two people are becoming one. That is what that is the meaning and the purpose of sex. So when, you, so when you enter a relationship with Jesus, this is how they're similar. When you enter a relationship with Jesus, the, 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 the vow is, is, the, is the vow you make to follow him brings you into relationship. Baptism, like the ring, is the one-time symbol that you're with him now. And communion is the ongoing renewal of that covenant. So when you think about it, sex and communion have a lot in common. Both are covenantal renewal ceremonies. Both remind us how this relationship worked. With Jesus, it's all about the blood. It's about the cross. It's about him. It's not about me. In marriage, it's about two people becoming one. That is what marriage is. It's because it points not just to our joy and our fulfillment, but it points to something bigger that God wants to do, which I promised this earlier. We'll talk more about next week in displaying what he, what this relationship is like with, between him and the church. Most people struggle in their relationship with Jesus because they fail to remember the cross. They fail to remember the gospel. They think it's a cross plus good behavior. Communion is that opportunity that we all have. If we totally mess up the, the service, we have communion to say, okay, wait a minute. This, this, my, I was feeling crummy when I came in here, but I, this communion receiving the, the, the broken uh, the body and the spilt blood, that this relationship is built upon his performance, not mine. That's how this works. It doesn't work because I work. It, it works because he worked on my behalf. And that's what communion reminds you of. Most people struggle in their marriage because they forget that two people are supposed to become one. That's how marriage works. Two people becoming one. So people live married, but they have two separate lives. 
So even Paul, and this is not, this is for free. And somewhere else, he says, he says that, hey, talking to men, he's like, why, what, you know, basically like when, we, when we're not loving to our wives, that we actually hurt ourselves. Why would he say that? Because you're not two, you're one. You're not on two sides of the table. You're one. You're one. You're one. Sex reminds you that two people are one. It is a a powerful, deepening experience. But outside of that, outside of it, I mean, all you're saying is, you know, I love the feeling I get when I'm with you, but I don't really love you, and you're using it as a consumer good and not a, a covenantal good. And actually, it ends up damaging your ability to bond with someone else, which is why there's all these connections between intimacy and sexual immorality and addiction. More and more, I mean, more and more, it's not just the Bible saying this, but more and more articles and books that I read are talking about the, the correlation between sex outside of marriage and failed relationships, specifically cohabitating. Uh, I mean, if you look at the stats, I mean, marriage is, is going way down and, and, and cohabitating is going way up. A New York Times article on the downside of cohabitation written by Meg Jay, she says in this article what statistics actually been telling us all along, that people who cohabitate do not increase their chances of a better marriage. In fact, they significantly decrease those chances. And part of that has everything to do with the purpose of sex, which is two people becoming one. One of the interviewers, Jennifer, she had, had this to say. She says about her experience, she says, I felt like I was on a multi-year, never-ending audition to be his wife. Of course, because it's a consumer relationship, trying to adjust to each other. Sex outside of marriage in no way prepares you for sex inside of a marriage because they're not even the same thing. If they're physical, it's the same thing. That's what our culture is obsessed with, the, the, the physicality of it. And everything you hear about it has nothing to do with souls becoming one, but it has to do with technique. It's everywhere. I mean, I'm reading like Field and Stream magazine and they're saying five ways to spice up your sex life. I'm like, I just want to catch a bass. Like, why, <laughs> why is this being talked about in Field and Stream? Romance and sexual splendor is not fueled by skill, but exclusivity and oneness. And in that context, it's, it's powerful in a positive way. You know, if you're tempted, if you're not married, you're tempted, like, well, I need to, I want to practice so I don't look stupid. Well, after 21 years of marriage, here's my advice. Look stupid. Even if you have to fake it, you know, look dumb. Don't, that no one's going to come. You're not going to, you know, get married and your spouse say, oh, man, I'm so glad you practiced. Like, no one's going to, no one's going to say that. So in light of this, Paul says in verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. This is interesting. We don't manage it. We don't rationalize it. We don't even resist it. You know, you can resist the devil and he'll flee. When it comes to sexual immorality, you flee. 
Flee. Why? Because you might get pregnant. Why? Because the Bible says so. Why? Because God will judge you. No. Every other sin. Now, let me just pause there. The Bible is going to put sexual sin in a different category. But let me just go ahead and say that most churches have taken this teaching on the Bible and totally messed it up. And what they do with this section is they say sexual immorality is in a different category of itself because God is really angry at sexual sin, but sins over here are not so bad. That is not what's being said here. It's not what's being said here. And I'll talk more about this next week as a major failure in the church and talking about the designer's intention. Every sin, big and small, and everything in between is offensive in light of who God is. God is not especially agitated towards sin, but that's how it gets preached, and that's how people feel when they hear it. Why is this sin in a category all of its own? Because the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. There is a particular warning against sexual immorality because it is disproportionately destructive to you. And God loves you. Man, the fire is so good right here. Man, when it just runs, run around with it, it's just physical. And I just, as long as no one gets hurt, if, it's, if everyone agrees, what's the problem? Every other sin, this sin is in a category of its own because it disproportionately hurts you. And the consequence often you carry with the rest of your life. That's why the church in response to this sin and how it talks about this sin should not come with condemnation, but extreme compassion. That's one of the ways that the church has got it wrong is it speaks of this with condemnation and not, I think, the compassion of Paul in tears over what they did not know and did not understand about sex. We'll end with this last verse. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have with God? You are not your own. Here's a, one of my favorite lines in all the Bible. You were bought with a price. It's what God's way of saying. Do you know how valuable you are? There's no discrepancy in the price. It was his blood. You were bought with a price. He treated you like the most valuable thing in the world. He who did not spare his own son, will he not give you all things?
if I've messed anything, if you don't like what I've said so far, just do this one. So glorify God in your body. Every day I wake up, God, take this old, dying, decaying body and use it for your glory. If you don't know what to do, ask him that question. God, how, how do I glorify you with my body? It's so hard for us to get our minds around, and we'll, I, I keep saying this, don't I? We'll talk about this next week. Um, we'll talk a lot about next week. Hopefully I can get it all in. The, um, we, we idolize we idolize sex and we idolize marriage, which is why it's so hard for us to get our minds around not finding this and it being withheld from us. Ernest Becker, who wrote the Pulitzer Prize winning book, Denial of Death said this, this is fascinating. We are the first society speaking of the secular West who has a widespread belief that there is no ultimate future that when you die, you go to extinction and personal consciousness is temporary. Therefore, there has never been a society that has believed so firmly in the insignificance of human life. Now here's where it gets interesting for our topic today. However, we secular people still need to know that our lives matter in the grand scheme of things. God has put eternity in your heart. We still want to merge ourselves with some higher meaning, but if we no longer have God, how do we do this? As a result, there has never been a society who has put such an emphasis on finding their one true love. Jesus is your one true love. It's his arms that you're so desperate to fall into. If you have him and you never have sex the rest of your life, you will be missing out on nothing. For the kingdom of God is like a man, like a woman who finds a treasure and with joy sells everything including their sexuality for him. For some, that call means we do get married. For some, that call means we don't get married. But whatever it is, nobody misses out on anything. Our culture has created an idol out of sex. The church has taught marriage, sexuality, wrong and it's confusing and it's difficult and it seems cruel but if you find Christ I mean what else do you need he's our life that's why Paul we'll get this in a few weeks this will not be next week but in chapter 7 he says this is what I mean brothers at the appointed time has grown very short which means this life is going away and we have eternity with him from now on therefore let those who have wives live as they had none. Because whether you're married or not, doesn't matter if you have him. Doesn't mean that you don't love your wife, by the way. It just means that you live as though this is the ultimate thing is him. 
And those who mourn as though they're not mourning. And those who rejoice as that they're not rejoices. And those who buy as though they have no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they have no dealings with the world. For this present form of this world is passing away. Could you stand to your feet? It is impossible for you to live a less than life if you have Jesus. Impossible. Can't happen. God wants you to know some things. God loves you, wants to heal you. We'll get into some questions that may have popped in your head next week. But as we close, I, I, I want to focus on the fact how much God wants to heal you. You may be in here like, oh man, my past, my high school, your college years. another marriage your ongoing pornography addiction what you've done to others what others have done to you first lie that the enemy told you is that you should follow your desires the second lie that he told you is that God won't forgive you. He knocked you down and he has his knee on your back keeping you down. One of God's favorite things to do is to restore. That's why he came and bled and died on a wooden cross between two thieves. It's not because you could figure it out. It's because you couldn't figure it out. He's come to remove the guilt to remove the shame and to heal and fix what is broken. Jesus, we are your everything to us. God, I pray for lives in a community that puts you at the center, that lifts you up. It's all there. God, we've contended. We've contended for lesser things. God, I just pray right now, you'd, you'd make every man, woman, boy, girl aware of just how much you love them, how proud you are, how generous you are. You spilled your blood for us. God, I pray for people to have the freedom to walk away from their sin, but also to walk away from their shame and their guilt, because on the cross you dealt with both.